0: Welcome to Bear in Mind, the Brown Psychiatry Podcast, clear current content about mental health. I am the host, Dr. Tracy Guthrie, Psychiatry Residency Program Director and
1: Co-Editor-in-Chief.
2: And I'm Dr. Camilla Cosman, Psychiatrist and Co-Editor-in-Chief.
1: And I'm Dr. Matthew Howe, a fourth-year Psychiatry Resident and Script Editor for today's episode.
2: First, a content warning.
0: In this episode, we will talk about sensitive topics, some of which you may find triggering. Our only purpose is to provide education and information. Our content is not to be considered medical advice.
1: So we're all getting older and oftentimes it's hard for patients and loved ones to know if someone's forgetfulness is just due to old age. This month we're going to be discussing Alzheimer's disease, a growing problem that affects a lot of patients and their families in the United States.
0: It turns out that Alzheimer's is the most common cause of age-related memory problems in the world and currently affects 6.7 million people in the U.S. alone, which is expected to double over the next 30 years. Alzheimer's can be a life-altering diagnosis for both patients and families and is associated with significant caregiver stress and burnout. Fortunately, we are learning more about how to diagnose and treat Alzheimer's every day And there are some new treatments available for early stage disease that may actually slow disease progression.
2: So today we'll cover a variety of topics about Alzheimer's disease what it is, who is at risk, how can it be prevented or treated, and what families should expect if a loved one is affected. So to walk us through this topic, we will be talking with Dr. Megan Riddle, a clinical assistant professor of psychiatry and human behavior at Brown University and the associate director of the Memory and Aging Program at Butler Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Riddle.
0: Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. I'm excited. Yes, welcome. How common is Alzheimer's and who is at risk, Dr. Riddle?
3: So it's incredibly common, and it's a significant public health issue. So as you mentioned in the introduction, almost 6.7 million Americans uh, are impacted by Alzheimer's disease, millions of people worldwide. For Rhode Island specifically, it's about 24,000. The Alzheimer's Association um, publishes a facts and figures document annually that's updated, Um, and it's going to be a growing problem as people continue to age the most common risk factors for Alzheimer's disease are, is age. Mm-hmm. So the longer you live, the more likely you are to develop Alzheimer's disease. And there's some other significant risk factors as well that we can talk about today.
2: That's good. And how can we differentiate between normal forgetfulness and Alzheimer's disease?
3: Yeah. So that's a great question, and oftentimes it's a ve- very subtle difference. So you know, I think about and what I often describe with patients is, you know, if you've noticed a change in your daily activities, so you're needing more assistance with things that you used to be able to do. One of the most common presenting symptoms that people come to us with um, was short-term memory difficulties and so you often hear that you know we're asking the same questions over and over again, needing more support and assistance. Um, but if you have any concerns it's really important to be evaluated and bring those to your primary care provider so you can have a more thorough evaluation because oftentimes what is associated with potential normal aging, may actually be an early Alzheimer's dementia process. Mm -hmm.
1: So. So can Alzheimer's be prevented? And if yes, how?
3: So, you know, kind of going back to Risk factors. There are certain risk factors that we can't do anything about. Um, I talked about old age. Um, another risk factor um, is genetics, so particularly there's a gene called the APOE gene, um, and it's the APOE4 gene that conveys a higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And then family history, particularly if you have a first-degree relative with Alzheimer's disease, that will convey a higher risk. Um, There are other modifiable risk factors, so things that you can impact, um, and there's a lot of research going into some of these preventative measures, particularly lifestyle modification. Um, A common thing that we talk about is what protects your heart, protects your brain. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes we talk about things like physical exercise, so you don't want a sedentary lifestyle. You want to be physically active, um, not smoking, so eliminating some of those toxins as well as minimizing alcohol use, Um, being socially and emotionally engaged, so having a close network of friends, challenging your intellect, being stimulated in the community, Um, and then also managing your medical comorbidities, so things like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes. These are all things that can impact your cardiovascular risk that we know also impact your cerebrovascular risk as well.
0: What should someone do if they're worried that they or a loved one might have Alzheimer's? And a lot of people want to know, is there a test Mm -hmm. for Alzheimer's disease?
3: So uh, it's a good question. Uh, It's a very long answer. And so if you do have concerns, initially the first step should be bringing those Mm -hmm. to Uh, Provider that you trust. So, for most people, that's your primary care doctor. Um, They will often do kind of an initial workup, so things that include a physical exam, potentially some short memory testing in the office. They can also order lab work um, and occasionally some additional brain imaging, particularly something called an MRI that looks at the structure of the brain. Uh, Depending on the results of those tests, um, they might be concerned that you need a more specialized workup. And that's when you may come to me uh, or others uh, like me. So in subspecialty clinics, either focused on geriatric psychiatry or neurology, we're lucky here at Butler to have the Memory and Aging Program. And that's really what we specialize in, is early diagnosis and treatment of Alzheimer's disease. And at that point, you might have some more in-depth testing. So there's something called neuropsychological testing that is a longer cognitive test that looks at different parts of memory, things like language, attention executive function so higher order processing and is really good at teasing apart what is an abnormal pattern of changes in memory and thinking versus what might be normal aging or a result of other concerns that impact your cognitive health things like depression uh, anxiety or even things like polypharmacy you know taking too medication too many medications and interactions mm-hmm. The structural imaging that I talked about, the brain MRI, that's available clinically, meaning that your doctor could order it, we could order it here, and it would be covered by your insurance. That gives us information about the structure of your brain. So sometimes in an early Alzheimer's disease process, we can see shrinking. It's also called atrophy of certain parts of the brain, and that would show up on an MRI that we could review together It also shows some of those uh, cerebrovascular changes. So any history of strokes, you want to rule out any other causes of memory trouble. Um, And there can be very common in people that have high blood pressure and high cholesterol. So again, things that interrupt the way your brain is able to communicate. Mm -hmm. Then there are some other subspecialty tests. So particularly in a research environment, there's a certain type of brain imaging called a PET scan Um, And that uses a radio tracer, meaning that you would get um, injected with a certain marker that looks for certain proteins that we know to be associated with Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. So the two primary proteins that we know to be involved in Alzheimer's disease are a protein called beta amyloid. Mm -hmm. You may have heard of amyloid plaques. And then also something called tau, tau tangles, um, particularly phosphorylated tau. And research has developed these specialized scans to look and see, is your brain building up these proteins? Um, That's important because mild changes in memory can be caused by multiple different factors, but we're actually now able to look and see is somebody developing these abnormal proteins years before they develop any cognitive symptoms, Mm -hmm. which is a fascinating change in diagnosis and workup and something that's happened even since I've become a physician. It used to be that you wouldn't know if somebody had Alzheimer's disease until after they passed away and you were able to actually look at their brain And now, thanks to advancements in science, we're able to see um, and give people diagnosis much earlier, which then impacts their ability to gain access to treatment, whether through clinical trials or available medications, um, and certainly make changes to some of those modifiable risk factors that we talked about earlier.
2: Mm -hmm. In talking about
3: diagnosis, what should patients
2: and families do once a diagnosis of Alzheimer's is made?
3: So, you know, again, that kind of goes back to the changing landscape and when the diagnosis is made. So for a long time, people weren't coming to the clinic to get assessed until changes in the memory and function were much more advanced. And so oftentimes people are diagnosed in a more advanced stage of memory impairment. Now, thanks to changes in uh, diagnostics, the imaging that I talked about, as as well as some other additional testing Um, People can be diagnosed much earlier when the changes are only mild. Mm -hmm. And so I think about a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease as on a continuum. Mm -hmm. So you can have a period of time where you know, if you're involved in research, that you're building up these amyloid plaques or tau tangles, but you may not have any impairment at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So that is a preclinical phase. There's another phase called mild cognitive impairment, um, and that can be due to Alzheimer's disease based on some of those biomarkers. But mild cognitive impairment can also be related to other things that might potentially be reversible, mm-hmm. things like untreated depression and anxiety, poor sleep, polypharmacy. Um, and that's why it's important to get access to you know a workup. Um, because some of that can revert back to normal cognition. And then there's something where you would advance to a more of a dementia stage. And so I often get asked, what's the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? And so dementia is an umbrella term. And so there can be many different causes of dementia. All that means is that your change in memory and cognition actually impacts your daily functioning. Alzheimer's disease is the most common cause of dementia. There are other causes as well. Um, but that, when you start to you know, gain that diagnosis, that helps in terms of family support, gives you a chance to make changes to your lifestyle to help prevent progression. A um, recent um, study showed that actually up to 40% of dementia could be postponed by making modifiable changes to your lifestyle, um, which is, you know, again, earlier you're diagnosed, the more opportunity you have to preserve your quality of life. So in terms of getting engaged in care and what to do, an early diagnosis um, is still filled with hope. I think, you know, for a long time, you know, people would hear Alzheimer's disease and think, okay, so there's nothing I can do now, Um, and they kind of pivot towards planning for the future. And while that's still very important, um, you know, what I do want to convey today is the field is rapidly changing and people are having access to treatment that may impact their daily cognition and functioning to make a difference in the underlying pathology of the disease. And so it's a a hope mission now. Um, We are on the brink of quite a bit of new discovery and I think will only continue to grow.
1: Yeah, it's very exciting. And I'm sure a lot of would like to know what types of treatments are becoming available now and how can someone access these new treatments?
3: Mm, sure. So, you know, f- the FDA has approved several different types of treatments. Um, I would say we can talk about some that are most recent approved that work on the underlying biology, um, but things that have been around longer are things called denepazil or rivastigmine. There's also a medication called galantamine, And they're a family of medications that really target symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. So they don't do anything to change the underlying pathology or, unfortunately, the progression of the disease. But they do target symptoms, and they do that by increasing the amount of a neurotransmitter, so um, basically a chemical in the brain that can help with memory and thinking. Those are readily available. They've been around and approved by the FDA for several years there's another medication called Mimentine. It's also called Namenda. that's for a more advanced stage of dementia. Um, again, that doesn't change or impact the underlying um, pathophysiology or the course of the disease, but it can help with symptom management. Um, and then the latest change um, is that the FDA has actually approved two different medications through a process called a fast track, meaning that they've, you know, deemed that these new medications can provide a reasonable clinical benefit um, through kind of a fast process. And those actually do target the underlying uh, pathophysiology, particularly targeting amyloid. So amyloid is one of those proteins I mentioned that starts to accumulate years before you develop symptoms. And these medications target amyloid uh, to remove that in the hope that that would preserve current cognition and, and prevent progression of the disease.
1: Yeah, and so how can someone go about like getting onto these medications?
3: So previously, up until the last year, the only way anyone would have access to these medications is through clinical research trials. So at the Memory and Aging Program at Butler, we're actively enrolling in trials that target anti-amyloid and anti-tau, but through a research study Um, you have the option of uh, potentially receiving a placebo, meaning you might get the active medication, but you may also not. Um, Right now, because they've been FDA fast-tracked, technically that they could be available clinically, meaning that a doctor could provide a prescription. But as of now, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services are not covering these medications, which, as you can imagine, poses a significant financial burden for individuals. And then for these particular types of medications, as they remove amyloid from your brain, it can cause leaking of your vessels, Um, and this is a significant side effect and a need for close safety monitoring, Um, and so it also really depends on where you're going to get access to treatment, making sure that whoever's providing these medications has the ability to safely monitor individuals, um, and that isn't clearly flushed out yet. So as of now, it's really mainly through clinical trials who have strict parameters on safety guidelines to make sure that those that receive the drugs are safe and well cared for.
0: So I know you mentioned a lot about lifestyle changes, and I know that that, um, that can't be understated. as an impressive percentage of 40% uh-huh. um, can be, change can occur in 40% of people who make lifestyle changes. Um, I wanted to ask a question about what we, should talk, what we should say to families who are currently dealing, mm-hmm. that they currently have someone with the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. In your experience with patients and families, what are the big issues that come up that it would be helpful for families to know in advance to prepare for? How, are they, how should they be prepared? What should they know uh, if they're in this situation now? They have someone with this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. There is symptomatology already happening. Um, what what are you seeing? What would you advise them
3: to do? Sure. So um, unfortunately, Alzheimer's is a progressive disease, which means that it will get worse over time. And so initially, while it may start with more difficulty with short-term memory um, or problem-solving and judgment, um, that can progress to more advanced problems that require more assistance and supervision with something called activities of daily living. So meaning that... Somebody's going to need more assistance with things like, you know, bill pay. Um, People can be vulnerable financially. So oftentimes um, we hear that people are, you know, writing checks or have money unaccounted for. So family providing additional supervision for that is very important. We also talk about medication oversight and management. So oftentimes recommend that people use a pill box to make it easier to remember to take their medications appropriately and on time. That can be an area of safety concern for people with early cognitive impairment getting confused um, and missing important medications for their daily life. Driving is another big safety concern and uh, frankly one uh, that can become a point of contention for a lot of people. (laughs) Um, And really the way we phrase that is, you know, having essentially we call driving retirement. (laughs) Um, Having Mm -hmm. someone, a loved one that you trust, ride with you, keep an eye on how things are going, We generally start by scaling back from, okay, don't drive on, you know, the highway, stay away from 95, stick to kind of close, familiar areas at lower speeds, um, have some additional supervision. Um, And then, you know, there is the option of having an occupational therapist perform a driving test, which is available. That's both a written test as well as a street test to have kind of an objective person assess your safety on the road. Um, For some people, they recognize that they're having cognitive change and they are very willing to release their keys. For other people, it really is um, kind of a lifeline to autonomy and independence Mm -hmm. and is an enormous challenge and um, not to be understated, you know, particularly in more um, urban areas where there are other modes of transportation available um, But certainly compared to a rural area, it can really be isolating to not have access to transportation. Um, And so those are kind of the few key areas initially that we pay attention to. Um, But also caregiver distress, Mm -hmm. caregiver burden. Mm -hmm. So the Alzheimer's Association has identified... About 11 million people um, in terms of kind of caregiver hours, which amounts to billions of dollars uh, a year in uh, basically unpaid caregiving. Mm-hmm. And so this, as you can imagine, impacts their daily lives. So typically caregivers are a family member. So whether it's a spouse or a child, um, you know, it's they're providing both assistance with some of those you know, higher level bill pays and supervision, but also can be significant hands-on care, Mm -hmm. uh, whether that's bathing, dressing, toileting. Um, We often talk about how it can be a significant change in role and relationship, uh, going from spouse to caregiver, um, and that comes with it, um, grief and loss, um, losing your companion, losing your confidant. And I think there's something in dementia that we talk about called Um, kind of anticipatory grief. So you're already grieving the loss of your loved one while they're still physically present. Mm -hmm. But so much has changed um, that, you know, honestly, I I follow people from their diagnosis until their passing. um, And there's always a point in care where actually the family and the loved one becomes the person that I see um, and actually intervene with the most um, because it's impacting their daily life so significantly. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of research around what that does to a caregiver's health. People are at a high risk of depression, of burnout. There's a lot of guilt that can come around that. Um, There's also, you know, in conversation, people will experience almost a relief when a loved one passes because, you know, of what that does and what it has done. Um, And so making sure we address that, that we name it, that we normalize it, Mm -hmm. um, these are all reactions that uh, are common um, and that everyone's struggling with in uh, kind of a different point in time. Um, it impacts their finances, so you can imagine the amount of hours that people are not able to go to work because their loved ones require supervision. Um, for some people, that have flexible jobs. That's not a problem. But for most people, it, it is a mm-hmm. significant issue. They only have so many unpaid days they can't leave work or they lose their job. Mm-hmm. And so you're running into the public health problem of someone who really needs 24-7 supervision at home by themselves. Um, and people really do the best they can with what they have. Uh, we've gotten creative in terms of trying to set up home cameras, mm-hmm. You know, putting locks on the door to prevent wandering. Um, their Alzheimer's Association offers an opportunity for identification bracelets if someone to, were to get lost clearly states who they are, that they have Alzheimer's disease. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I previously worked and trained in Tennessee, um, and misidentification uh, was a significant problem because people had so um, much greater access to guns. Mm -hmm. And so what we talk about a lot around safety is access to weapons and guns Mm -hmm. because a part of later illness is they may not recognize other people Um, they think that their loved ones are actually intruders Um, natural response to that is kind of that fight or flight and when people have access to weapons there have been instances where people have taken a shot at their loved ones not recognizing who they are Mm -hmm. thinking that they're defending themselves Um, and unfortunately there have been instances of police violence (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. and and even you know neighbor violence on, you know, when somebody doesn't recognize their home might be misidentified as an intruder into somebody else's home. And so um, there's a significant risk there that we, you know, try to address and talk about very proactively.
0: Are there any online resources,
3: Dr. Riddle, available for caregivers? I cannot uh, emphasize enough how helpful the Alzheimer's Association is. They have a wonderful website that has a Rhode Island chapter of resources. June is actually Alzheimer's Disease and Brain Awareness Month. And so there are many activities, both in person and virtual, throughout the month that people can access, both in related to kind of caregiver support, education, and resources, but also just to kind of help walk through and educate the journey on what's available um, and what's available locally. The Office of Healthy Aging in Rhode Island is another wonderful resource that um, many people may not be aware of. Again, all accessed online. Um, and really, it's kind of a you know choose-your-own-adventure, find what uh, is most pertinent to you. I tell people all the time that go through, look around, make yourself familiar with the website. Mm-hmm. Um, there will be some things that apply to you and others that may not, um, but it is um, a wealth of information there. Um, and then there's the Rhode Island Caregiver Alliance specifically um, that has, uh, support, uh, for those that are caring for loved ones, um, in Rhode Island. Um, there's, you know, a lot of policies. So there's a a state plan in Rhode Island as well. So, um, people being proactive on how to make Rhode Island a dementia-friendly state um, and be thoughtful about policies and plans and organizations working together. I'm part of an advisory board that brings some of these organizations together, and we meet monthly uh, with the Rhode Island Department of Health, again, to have resources that are available and accessible oftentimes as a physician I'm not as familiar with what is available um, from some of these other support services and it helps keep us all on the same page um, in relationships growing and evolving so that we can make sure that our patients are aware of what's out there um, as we expand our own knowledge. So you mentioned about some like diagnostic tests that are available through research studies
2: and also we know that there are many drugs being investigated right now. So how does someone get into a clinical trial for Alzheimer's? Find out how to get into clinical trials and much more in the second part of our Alzheimer's episode.